Amen. Well, we can trust Him, right? And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Sometimes it's good for us to come in and remind ourselves of the promises and the truth of what God has done. And that's the reason that we lift high the name of Jesus in our worship. We can trust Him, which also means we can trust His Word. Amen? So we're not going to move away from worshiping. We're going to continue to do that. But why don't you find your seats and let's open our Bibles. And uh, would you go with me to the book of Mark? We are in the book of Mark. We're actually in Mark chapter 8 today. We're going to be finishing up chapter 8. This is halfway through the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us on uh, the Bible app, or you can uh, ask one of our ushers, just get, get their attention, and uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. Hey, if you don't own a Bible, uh, just take that one home with you. Consider it a gift. Uh, we love to study God's Word. So we're in Mark chapter 8 this morning, and as you're turning there, I just wonder, uh, does anybody know the mission statement of our church? What is our mission? Anybody say it? To glorify God, stop right there. Okay, stop right there. Don't move past that. Don't move past that, right? This is vertical. We exist. It's not a horizontal pursuit. First and foremost, we're here for His glory. We want to bring glory to God. How do I do that? Through the fulfillment of the what? The Great Commission. And the essence of the Great Commission is that we would make disciples. The question is, who are disciples? What do disciples look like? Well, if you want to know the answer to that question, this is it. Mark chapter 8, this is kind of a a pivotal chapter for us right here. It is at the heart and the center of this book, and it is going to give clear answers to the two questions that we've been asking throughout this entire book. The, The question, first and foremost, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And then second, what does it mean to be his disciple? You want answers to those questions? Do you want to know? Do you want to know what the essence of what we believe, why we are here? Do you want to know what the purpose of your life is, what Jesus expects of us, how to be a disciple, what a normal Christian life is supposed to look like? Do you want to know? Well, Mark chapter 8 could just light a fire in your heart to follow Jesus like you have never had before. The contents of this passage are highly flammable. All right? And I want you to hold out your Bible. Just kind of hold it out right in front of you. Hold, hold out your Bible. Just want you to see it right here. Do you know that what we are about to read, what you are about to hear, is explosive? You know that? So I'm going to give you a warning, okay? What you are about to hear Jesus say, if you hear this, you have to respond. All right? Maybe what you're going to hear is going to sound a little crazy. This could flip your life completely upside down. It could cost you everything, but it could also save you. And it could give your life real meaning and real purpose and a joy you didn't know was possible. Now, if that doesn't sound like something that you want, then now's not too late to turn up. You, you, you can head out the door. That's okay. All right? But if you stay, you're going to have to respond to this. Do you want to know how to be a disciple? This is it. This is it. Mark chapter 8, starting right in verse 27. Don't miss this. Jesus 
went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course it's going to be Peter, right? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is it. You want want a big idea of this text this morning? Note this. Jesus laid down His life for you. Will you lay down your life for Him? Father, I pray that You would speak to us even again this morning. I love that we are reminded of these promises. We're reminded that there, there, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And what a powerful, wonderful, beautiful name it is. And I pray that you would convince us again. We need reminded that you are worthy and that we can trust you, we can follow you. I pray that you would light a fire in our hearts to follow you like we've never had before. And that we would forsake all to be true disciples of you. Speak to us now. And I pray that you would get the glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're at halftime, right? This is halfway through uh, the book of Mark. Uh, Mark is basically trying to be proving the authority of Jesus through his teaching and his miracles. Uh, but now there's going to be kind of an, an obvious shift in emphasis. In fact, there's going to be a shift in destination. Uh, and, and which proves why he came. Verse 27 says that, that Jesus went out to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I was kind of uh, wrestling with this, and I decided I, I throw up a lot of maps. I throw up a lot of maps, and, and, and I kind of was wrestling. I thought maybe I don't need to do that today, right? Uh, we do that a lot, and uh, I know I'm kind of a nerd. I enjoy it, so I figured we wouldn't do that unless you wanted a map. Wow, you guys are as big a nerds as I am. Love it. All right, so here, here, I know this is kind of small, but I just want you to hear, here is uh, the Sea of Galilee right here, all right? Caesarea Philippi is way, way, way up north, way up here. Okay, I just got to tell you, this is one of the most important passages in the book of Mark. Jesus is about to clarify 
what the mission of the Messiah is. This is a really unusual place for him to do that because it's a a, a Roman, a Gentile place. And, And so far in the book of Mark, Jesus has just kind of been bouncing back and forth between the Sea of Galilee and around this region. He's been here for the most of his ministry. But from here on out, for the rest of the book, Jesus is on his way down to Jerusalem. And and come on, tell me, what's what's waiting for him in Jerusalem? Yeah, it's the cross. So he's trying to say, guys, this is it. Don't miss this. And, And I think he gives us two demands of the gospel here, if you're taking notes. Note this. Make the right confession. Make the right confession. So verse 27, he, he kind of asks him this question. Hey guys, who do, who do people say that I am? That is just kind of a safe icebreaker question. Like, let's just let's talk, okay? Let, let's get the conversation going. Anybody can answer this one. You, you've heard the rumors. You've seen the polls. You know, the, you, you know some answers here. And, and maybe there's no right or wrong answers here, right? Who do people say that I am? Notice that, that they don't, they, they kind of leave out what the religious leaders might have said. Like, I don't know that we could say that out in public. And, and, and they're not, maybe they're not really sure why Jesus is asking this question. Like, maybe, maybe he just needs a little bit of a, a, a morale boost. And so uh, they really kind of keep it to some positive things that people say. Like, like 1 verse 28 is John the Baptist. Herod, uh, King Herod for sure thought that. He thought that, that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Come back to haunt him. But John the Baptist is a pretty good guy, right? Others, they say, uh, say you're Elijah. So Elijah was a really important prophet in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the text says that he didn't actually die. Instead of dying, God just took him up to be with him in heaven. And, and then he's supposed to come back. In the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, uh, it says that Elijah is supposed to show up again before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So he's kind of important of a good thing others say he's one of the the prophets and they would uh, esteem the prophets and so what what, what i'm trying to show you is that that all these people that they uh, the 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 the, the crowds would say jesus is that's generally kind of a good thing but they're wrong right and so jesus hits them with the tough one and they start to realize he's not really fishing for compliments this is a test what does he say he says but who do you who do you say that i am The question's not whether others are going to get it right, but will you get it right? And I imagine some of these disciples might have started squirming just a little bit, right? It kind of reminds me of sports analysts. Right before the game, you you get a whole bunch of people behind a big desk, and they wax eloquently about their expertise and their opinions and what they know and what's going to happen. And then inevitably, somebody asks them a really direct question like, okay, but what's your prediction for the game? Who's going to win? And then they kind of, you know, you kind of see them squirming a little bit and hem and haw and, and not, not quite, I don't, I don't know that I could really say. That's what the disciples are feeling in this moment. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is saying this to you as well. It's like, guys, you've been on the sidelines. You've been spectators. You, you've, you've seen what I've been doing. Now I want to know what you think. You don't just get to watch. This is for you as well. 
you have to make a personal confession about who you think Jesus is. Forget the conflicting opinions of everybody else. You make the right confession. There's some pressure there, right? We're going to get it right. You're going to get it right. And who steps up? It's, it's, it's Peter, right? Peter steps up and, and all the rest of the disciples breathe a sigh of relief. Like, he'll be our spokesman. He'll, he'll, he'll say. And, but then they're holding their breath. Like, is he going to get it right? This is it. After all that we have seen and heard Jesus do and, and teach, th- th- this is a big moment. Is he going to get the right answer? And he steps up and says, you are the Christ. The crowd goes wild, right? They're all like slapping him on the back. Like, he got the right answer. Peter got it right. In fact, he is the first human in the book of Mark to actually confirm what Mark had claimed all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1. Remember that? We've seen this. I've got it for you on the screen. This is what Mark thinks about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the, here it is, Christ, the Son of God. Peter is the first one to actually declare that out loud. Great job, Peter. This word uh, Christ, Christos, is the the Greek translation of the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach or Messiah, meaning the anointed one. So so what, what, what you would do with anointing, you would pour oil on someone's head to anoint them as a symbol of that person receiving the Holy Spirit. And, and the reason someone would receive the Holy Spirit what was the Holy Spirit would then empower and enable them to carry out a specific task or responsibility or a role that they had to play. In the Old Testament, you anointed some of the prophets, for sure the priests and the kings. Incidentally, in the New Testament, it makes it really clear that Jesus is the prophet, the great high priest, and the king above all kings. But did you know that in the Old Testament, they didn't actually formally use um, the title, the Messiah? I know this seems like such a major doctrine, right? Like that, that, but it wasn't actually formulated really there in the Old Testament. It does come from the Old Testament, but they really kind of uh, drew it out a little bit later. The concept was actually rooted in God's promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God made a promise to David. He said, I'm going to raise up uh, your offspring after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's like, David, listen, listen. I'm going to take one of your sons, and I'm going to put him on the throne forever. Which is why it's really important that Jesus is from the line of David. And then later in the Old Testament, it was prophesied. I've got this one on the screen for you. Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. What kind of king is he going to be? What's he going to be like? He will deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So the people obviously were like, man, I want that kind of king. When, when's he going to show up? And this longing for a perfect king, uh, eventually out of that arose this concept of the Messiah. And this idea of the Messiah then kind of morphed into this general idea of a militaristic leader that, that would rescue and, and defeat Israel's political enemies and just give them peace. 
But of course, that's not really right, is it? Which is why, even though Peter got the right answer, he says, you're the Christ. Then verse 30 says, Jesus charged them not to tell anybody. I mean, he's been saying this a lot. Why? Why? Why don't, why don't you want anybody? No. Well, it might just be because he knows that these people don't understand the mission of the Messiah. So he's like, don't, don't, don't go spreading that around because then everybody's going to misunderstand why I'm here. Because even Peter misunderstands. Right answer, wrong impression. We know that because verse 31, this is such a pivotal moment right here. Verse 31, it says, Jesus began to teach them. So Jesus is going to start to correct and to clarify the mission of the Messiah. And this is the first of three times that he predicts his death and resurrection. He's going to do it here, and then again in chapter 9, and then again in chapter 10. And what he's saying to them, he's teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now put yourself in poor Peter. Like, this was shocking, okay? Peter didn't have a category for a, for a suffering Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to be victorious, not suffering as a loser, not, not tortured and, and killed by his enemies. Okay, so just like imagine for a minute that, that you're, you're on a basketball team and, and, and at halftime, it's halftime and you're in the locker room and, and you've been in a battle back and forth and you're right there in the game and your star player, the, the leader of your team, steps up in the locker room and he's going to talk and everybody gets silent because like, he's the leader. We're going to listen to him. We're gonna, we we want to hear what he has to say. And he steps up and he says, guys, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the second half. You ready? In the second half, the other team is going to take me out of the game. You'd be like, that's a great motivational speech, man. Thanks for that. And like, hey, go team. Yeah. Like, no, you'd be like, what the heck, man? What are you talking about? You can't talk like that. This is not the way this is supposed to go. So that's why Peter, verse 32, he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. He's like, look, if, if I'm right about you being the Messiah, then you can't talk about losing. We're supposed to win. Come on, man. Let's, let's go take out the enemy. But it must have been shocking for him then when Jesus turns and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, so I, I, I just I can't imagine that this is one of Peter's favorite memories, right? I mean, poor Peter has been on an emotional roller coaster. You just had your shining moment. You got the answer right. And the next minute you get called Satan. Well, does that sound harsh to anybody? Is Jesus just into calling names? Is that what we're doing now? Like, why? Why does, why does he say this? Well, right before that, verse 33, it says Jesus was turning and seeing his disciples. Then he rebuked him. And it's not because he was trying to publicly humiliate Peter. But because those guys needed to hear this too. The rest of the disciples are just like Peter. And they all misunderstand the mission of the Messiah, why he came. See, what Peter's basically saying is like, Jesus, Jesus, listen, listen. You can reign as our king and you can skip all of that suffering and dying stuff. You don't need to do that. Which is actually echoing the same temptation that Satan had offered to Jesus. 
Remember that? That the Spirit had led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Matthew chapter 4 actually tells us what Satan said to him. He, he took Jesus up onto a, a really high point and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, all right, Jesus, listen, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. We'll, we'll let you be king, just do it my way. Do it my way. It's essentially what Peter is saying. One commentator said he offers Jesus the crown without the cross. But Jesus, he knows why he's doing it. And so he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Don't, don't reject the plan of God. Your greatest need is not a king who's going to save you from political oppression. You need a king who's going to be able to save you from your sin and the righteous wrath and judgment of God. The problem's worse than you know. You know that? We are rebellious sinners. We messed up this perfect world. And judgment is coming. We deserve death. And when the day of judgment arrives, we will be separated from God to spend eternity suffering in hell. That's what we deserve. But that's why he came. That's why we needed the Messiah. Because it was only the only way to gain victory over sin and death was for him to suffer and lose. For him to give up and lay down his life to be the perfect sacrifice. That's why verse 31, he's telling him the Son of Man must suffer. Jesus had to die so that you and I could be forgiven before a holy God. There's no other way that we could be saved. He didn't conquer with the sword. He conquered with the cross. But what he's saying to us, he's, he's trying to make this personal. Come on, guys. Who do you say that I am? Don't just get the right facts. Will you make the right confession and believe that Jesus died for you? And then there's a second demand of the gospel. Note this. Lose your life for Christ. See, if you misunderstand the gospel, you're, you're going to totally misunderstand discipleship. And now he's really trying to just clarify the second question. We know who Jesus is now. What does it mean to be his disciple? Here it is. This is it. Verse 34. If anyone would come after me, the Greek there means to follow. You want to follow Jesus? This is it. Here's how. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This is it. Do you know that the call to follow Jesus is a call to die? You say, whoa, man, like, I didn't sign up for that, man. I just want some fire insurance. Like, I just don't want to go to hell. Like, I, can, can we do that part? Like, I, Listen, you, 
you have to understand that there are no uh, uh, tiers of membership in God's kingdom. You know that? There's no, there's no uh, desk in the celestial kingdom you go up to and kind of pick your package, which, which one you want to buy. Like you want, I want to start with the basic. You know, if, if we could start with the bronze level package, that means no hell, but there's no other requirements. I don't have to, it's not going to cost me anything. I just get to live my life, right? Man, if you go to silver level, I mean, that's a little bit more benefits, but, but now you're, you might have to give up those expensive vacations, and you might have to start giving money to the church, and you're going to have to share the gospel with at least two people in your lifetime, okay? So if you get to gold level, that's like, that's people that want to go into ministry, okay? Those are people that want to be like a pastor or a missionary or have other, some other form of ministry. I mean, those people are really serious about it, right? Platinum, that's just straight-up martyr, okay? Those are the people literally going to die. It's too expensive, right? Too expensive. But that's not the way this works. What does he say? Verse 34, look at it, look at it. He says, if anyone, if who? If anyone would come after me. This is how anyone follows Jesus. It's not just for the radical, these spiritually elite people who really want to go all in. This is for all disciples of Jesus, which means this is for you. The president of my seminary, Dr. Daniel Aiken, said it this way. Jesus lays out here the essence of the normal Christian life, the basics of discipleship, which sadly in our day, looks like the radical Christian life. You see, we've gotten so far away from Jesus' original intention for disciples that if we see a real disciple, that just looks too crazy. That looks radical. We have dumbed down being a disciple to cater to comfort and convenience, thinking that if we just make it easier for people, if we try to tell them, like, come on in, it's not really going to cost you that much, we're not asking too much of your time, maybe more people will be interested. We might get a bigger, bigger crowd, right? And, and maybe, maybe that puts more butts in the seat. But it's certainly not going to make real disciples who are committed to being the hands and the feet of Jesus in a community in need and who are going to boldly open their mouths and declare the truth that Jesus saves the lost. Do you know that the church is not here to make you happy? We're not here for, to make you comfortable and to keep you entertained and to try to keep your kids happy. And, and you know, you, we want you mildly invested as long as it's not convenient. That's not why we're here. We are here to be on mission to follow Jesus. And he says the call to follow is a call to die. Will you lay down your life? That shouldn't sound too radical. If it sounds too extreme, you might not understand the gospel. Because here's, here's how it applies. You're, 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 the question is, what does this mean for me today? How, how do I do that? Well, well, he tells you, verse 34, he says, let him deny himself. See, here's how this works. Before the gospel took root in my heart, I was all about me. Looking out for number one. Somebody's got to protect my interests. Somebody's got to make sure that I get what I want. Me, 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 me first. But the gospel says that's not what Jesus did. He didn't give in to the temptation of self-preservation, self-interest. Right? He's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this? He knows what's coming. He knows that he's going to the cross. And he wasn't like super excited about it. He's like, man, this is going to be fun. No. He says, my soul is sorrowful. But what does he pray to the Father? 
He says, not what I will, but what you will. And then he willingly went to the cross and submitted himself to death. He died for me. So that now if I believe, if I belong to him, if I am in Christ, then I am dead to that self-centeredness. That's not who I am anymore. If I am a disciple, then I lay down me. I lay down my selfish interests. I don't come first anymore. And that's only radical because it's so drastically different than what comes naturally to us. We we naturally kind of recoil if if following Jesus threatens our interests or routines, right? I mean, come on, let's be honest. We'd rather sleep in a little bit longer or play on our phones than read our Bibles. Man, I want to be able to do what I want to do. Weekends, man, those, that's for fun. I want, to, I want to be free to travel and do things that I want to do. I don't want to have to like commit to, to being a part of the body of Christ every single week. That's a lot to ask, right? Or, 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 or uh, I might have to deal with people when I get there. And I'd like to just politely ignore the people I don't want to deal with. And, and, and I don't want to have to give the money. I, I want to spend that on, on new tech and entertainment, upping my lifestyle. I don't want to have to invest in what Jesus is doing through his church. And, and small groups, I'm just telling you, I'm right here with you on this, okay? We know that small groups is great. But we know that this is what God expects of his church, that we're going to be loving one another and serving one another, encouraging one another, uh, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. We know that this is important. We don't need to neglect meeting together. We know it's good. But can we just be honest? Sometimes I don't want to go. We're tired, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess with our kids' schedule. It's inconvenient, right? You feel this when you come home from work? Man, when we come home from work, I just want to be able to have some me time. I don't want to have to do a honey-do list. I think about others. I, I, we, we get easily irritated when, when others demand our time. We feel like they should, they should respect my desire. They should respect how I feel. We don't want to have to give up our plans to help somebody else. I'm just telling, okay, I'm just being real with you right now. I'm really good at focusing on me. It's so much easier to think about me and to focus on my wants and my needs and how things are going to impact me and what I'm going to have to give up. But the gospel demands that I put my selfishness to death. And the only way I can do that is if I have a genuine love and gratefulness for Christ and what he has done for me. You want to be a disciple? Deny yourself. And then he says, that person also must take up his cross and follow me. Okay, we're going to have to clarify this one because a lot of people um, use this phrase a lot as like general inconveniences, right? Like my phone screen is cracked. or The AC in my car is not working. It's my cross to bear, right? Not exactly... Not exactly what Jesus means here, okay? What, 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 did a, what was a cross a symbol of? Death. Jesus subjected himself to humiliation because he was surrendered to the will of God even to the point of death. Do, 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 do you surrender? Are you surrendered to the will of God no matter the cost? Have you given your life to him? Would you say, God, I got hopes and dreams. I got things I want to do. But those things mean nothing to me if that's not your will for me. 
I want what you want for my life. It's yours. I give it to you. I surrender to you, even if that means I'm going to have to die. He's saying it's worth it because whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, you spend your life for Christ and the mission of taking the Gospel to the nations. That's why we're here. Do you know that? I was having a conversation with my daughter this week. We were in the car, and we were, you know, stuck in traffic, obviously. And we were talking about why we live here. And, and this conversation happens sometimes when it's cold, okay? Don't pretend like I'm the only one. I know that you, you've had these conversations too on the 100th day of January. Why do we live here, right? Like, why don't we live somewhere warm? Why don't we go somewhere where we can kick back on a beach all the time? Like, why? Why? So we were having this conversation about why. But this is a, we, we love it here. We love why we're here too. Because the, the people the people in this world are flocking to cities. Do you know that? The United Nations estimates that over 50% of the world's population lives in urban areas. And that's just going up. By the year 2050, it's going to be over 65%. That means when, when people get together, the need is great. And you think about right here. I mean, the nations are at our door. You think about the implications of living in a city with global impact. That's awesome, right? But here, here's, here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem. For most of us, the dream is to get away from people. We want to retire. We, we, we want to go somewhere where nobody's going to know us. We're going to be on our own. We're going to have space. We can, we can spread out. We can do our own thing. We're not going to have to deal with people. That's the dream, right? But what if we got a new dream? What if we dreamed that we could reach the lost people with the gospel? What if we dreamed that the church would care for those who are in need? That we wouldn't retreat, but we would want to see the cities revitalized with the gospel? What if you dreamed of the day where your co-worker's life was transformed by Jesus? Do we dream about that? So we were talking about Part of the reason we live here. There's a lot of people here, right? And there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus. And the church can't retreat from that. And then it got quiet. I thought the conversation was over. And then I heard her ask me this. Daddy, are we missionaries? Yes! Yes, baby, that's why we're here. And that's why you are here. This is it. What if our church was so fired up about following Jesus that we would sacrifice comfort and convenience, even our very lives, to live like we were sent here? To live like we were sent to Northern Virginia. And I know you may not live here forever, but you're here now. And for this season, God has you here. Will you spend every last breath for the mission of Christ? What if that became normal here? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, what does Jesus say? Verse 35. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So if you lose your life, you say, that's a paradox, right? 
but it's the only way that works. If safe and selfish is your thing, you're going to lose. So he says, lose your life. Lay it down for Christ. Verse 36 and 37, he's just trying to help you see that this just makes a whole lot more sense, okay? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? That's just good economics is what it is. Because which is more valuable? Your soul, your very life, or to waste your life on fleeting pleasures of what this world has to offer that ultimately have no meaning? See, genuine disciples are never disappointed. We don't even see it as a sacrifice anymore. We, we, We know that we have found it. We have found the one that satisfies. And so we can joyfully lay it down. We can give it all up and say, Christ is enough for me. I would give my life to follow Jesus. That's why we're here. Would you ever regret knowing that your life was spent in the service of your Savior who gave his life for you so that maybe others could hear and find salvation and life in Christ? It reminds me of the great missionary Jim Elliott, you know this, who literally gave his life on the mission field because he wanted the Aka Indians to be able to hear the gospel. Remember what he said? He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is it worth it? So can I ask you, are you laying your life down? Are you laying your life down at home? Or do you just kind of live selfishly there? Is, is home the place that you retreat to? Like, I have a right to think selfishly. This is me time. This is my space. What about it in your career? Do you lay your life down there? Or are you basically just in it so that you can make more money and feel a little bit more comfortable and secure or get the respect because of what you do? Or would you be willing to leverage your life for the gospel that you get to take Jesus into an office that I would never get to go as a pastor? Are you laying your life down in your neighborhood? Do you kind of ignore your neighbors because you just want some peace and quiet, want to do my own thing? Or are you praying for and seizing every opportunity that you could have to share the love of Christ and the gospel? What does it mean for you to lay down your life for him? Are you willing or reluctant? Does it make you joyful or miserable? See, the difference is that disciples savor the glory of Christ in the gospel. We're not embarrassed of him. We think Jesus is awesome. Which is why he says, verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Or do you believe that he is worthy? Is he worthy? Father, I pray that you would help us to sense 
the truth about who you are. God, this this passage wrecks me because it reminds me this is what real, true discipleship looks like. Lord, we want to be a church that is convinced that you are great and glorious. We don't want to waste the opportunities that you have given us because we're just focused on ourselves. We're just focused on what I want in life, my dreams, my hopes. God, I pray that we would be a church that joyfully lays those things down. God, even if you would call us to literally die, I pray that we would be willing. I pray that we would have our hearts set on you. And I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would use us in our homes. That we'd go home today instead of just what I want to do, what game I want to watch, and the nap I want to take, what I feel I have a right to do. And I pray that we would think of others. I pray that in our careers we would not be afraid, we would not be ashamed. It wouldn't just be to make money, not just for comfort or respect, but God, we would leverage our lives for the gospel and take every opportunity that we have to make you known. Lord, there are people that park right next to us where we live that don't know you. I pray that we would give our lives for this mission, that they might hear the gospel and trust you for salvation. Convince us again that you are worthy. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.